You're listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly interviews on topics to help entrepreneurs make their first or next step in business the right one. I am your host, Alex Sanfilippo. How often are you consumed by negative thoughts when you're considering taking a risk or making a big change that's surrounded by uncertainty? This is something that most of us struggle with, but we can all agree that it's not the healthiest mindset. In today's episode, I'm talking with Sukinder Sin Cassidy about choosing a mindset of possibility. Throughout her career in life, Sukinder has maintained this possibility mindset and it has served her well. She worked as a high-level executive for both Amazon and Google, and most recently she served as the CEO of StubHub. Today we're talking through points from her book titled Choose Possibility, which will help each of us better understand how to maintain this possibility mindset while taking risk and making big changes. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 120. And now let's not wait any longer. Here is my conversation with Sukinder Sin Cassidy. So Kinder, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm excited to talk with you about choosing a mindset of possibility today. And actually, much of what we're going to discuss comes directly from your book, which is titled Choose Possibility, which, by the way, I found to be just a delight to read. It was motivational as well as full of practical application, which is my favorite way for a book to be written. So thank you for putting this together. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for reading it. I know that that's not always a given with your interviewer, so I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I, I actually know that I'm one of the few podcasters out there that actually reads my guest book before they come on the show, and that's just my way of being prepared for you, my guest, and of course, I have to show up for the listeners. That's the most important thing to me. Well, I'm super excited to just talk through it live. The best place to start would be with a definition of what it means to choose possibility. So, Sukinder, based on your experience, how would you define this for us today? Sure. To choose possibility, which is the name of the book, is to reframe risk and how we think about risk and the role it plays in our lives. And in this case, particularly in our careers, I feel like many people move through the world worried about how to make a decision and and what risk to take or not take. And it feels very monumentous. And so does the idea of failure, of course. But in my own world, I've sort of reframed risk over the years as, you know, an entrepreneur and a CEO and as an employee, too, you know, in every stage of my career and chose possibility because, in fact, that's what risk taking is, right? It's a choice towards possibility that, yes, is uncertain. But when we look at it that way, it loses, it loses some of its scariness. Um, and as you'll see in the book, there's a whole framework around how you can do it and be a smarter risk taker. Yeah, and I, I really I took a lot from that. You had some great diagrams in there and things like that that made it very easy to kind of understand how your mind worked with all that. You have a quote at the beginning of the book that I wanted to mention real quick before we dive in here. And you said this, you said that risk taking is a continuous process that we humbly but hopefully embrace, knowing that individual chances we take may likely fail, but that our probability of overall success will increase as we iterate. We have this possibility mindset of, yeah, we're just driving forward, we're moving forward, and we're trying different things along the way. It's not some sort of, if you make one wrong move, you fall and you're done, right? It's something that you can just continuously propel yourself forward. And over time, you'll see the progress from it. Uh, that quote was something that really spoke to me that I think will really resonate with the listeners as well. Well, thank you. I think that um, you probably also read in the book, I would submit that while people readily accept this idea of iterating in companies and products, I think when it comes to our careers, you know, for some reason, and in many cases in our lives, we put a lot of weight on a single choice. So I think that, you know, when I observe how people make decisions and come to me for advice, there's what I call this myth of the single choice. 
we seem to think that there's this hero's journey and we look at risk takers from afar and we assume that it was one monumental choice. And when we look at our own career decisions, we also are like, oh my goodness, this is my make or break decision. And in fact, I think the relationship between risk and reward is very nonlinear, very iterative. And if you tried to guess which one of the moves you made or choices you made to unlock a reward, I suspect it would be pretty hard because it's numerous. And so you've sort of hit this idea of iteration and it's a core idea in the book, but I don't think people really think about risk-taking as iterative. And in fact, it is. And that makes it something anyone can learn. And I agree with you completely, this myth of the single choice. Why do you think this is such a struggle with people? Like, At what point in our lives does this become a factor that we just adopt? I don't know if it's maybe just in our DNA or if at some point in our lives, maybe we're told, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up, and it just kind of happens. Do you have any thoughts behind that? Sure. Well, I have a few. Um, first of all, when we all grow up, and you know this as well, like we are, we sort of become what I call like these these serial masters of tasks. You know, at school, you know, you study something, you take a test, you master it, then you move on to the ne- next thing. So, like we've been trained to sort of like progress is very linear, it's very binary. You know, you make it or you don't. You get into this school or you don't. You pass the test or you fail. You have a four point average or you don't. Like. It's all of these sort of choices that seem so binary. And I think that the way we go through educational systems, even sort of how courses are graded and taught, that teaches, teaches us these things. And then, of course, there's another thing that, you know, that researchers would point to, which is that if you look at the media, there's so much celebration of kind of that classic hero's journey, right? Everything is sort of like this one big epic struggle that the hero overcomes. And so everywhere around us, you know, and maybe it's because people have to condense stories into memorable things. Maybe it's because our own memories trick us and we strip out everything else and just remember the peak moment. But, you know, research suggests that both media and our memories reinforce this idea of like the one big thing you remember when often the story is actually far more nuanced. That's really true. When I think of my journey and I, I summarize it a lot on podcasts when I'm a guest and I can summarize like my last 10 years in less than three minutes and uh, yeah, I just hit the high points, right? Like you don't hit any of that. Well, then this, then this happened and it set me back a little bit, but then that led to this. Like you kind of leave some of that out because again, that's kind of the traditional hero's journey story, if you will. And it makes sense that it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily true, right? It's not the way that life actually works. It's, it's a pretty way to package it, but it's not the way that our lives are going to move day to day. And this actually leads me into another point that you have in the book that I really liked. You talk about pumping your risk-taking muscles. Can you talk about this a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, it's like it's like anything. If you think about being good at something, it's it's unlikely that you're going to make, you know, some big attempt at something without making small attempts first. And so if you think of risk taking as a process, I'm sort of baffled when people don't make small choices, yet then they face this monumentous choice and they have no experience in sort of doing the calculations, right? Or trying something out or experimenting. So I always talk to people about start early, do it often, and find little reasons to take risk in your life, because there will come a day when you have a more monumentous decision to make. But wouldn't you rather practice first? You know, in testing all the ways you might take little risks and make little choices to advance yourself and see how things turn out. So I'm a big fan of this idea that risk-taking is a process and a muscle that anyone can build, and that you need to find reasons to take risk. And I bet if you stepped back, I could give you three or four different reasons to take a risk on any given day. You know, that actually reminds me, recently I was in Los Angeles, I guess Santa Monica is actually where I was at, and there's a skate park there. 
where there are people that are fantastic that are skating and there's some newer people. This is kind of a strange example, but it's one that I just thought of is, uh, as you were sharing that. And you've got the people that are going into this, I mean, they're, they're going into this bowl, if you will, looks like an empty pool, right? And they are just, they're jumping out doing these crazy tricks that I don't even know what to call them. Anyone who knows skateboarding is probably laughing right now at me just describing it this way. But, and then you've got the people that are on the other end of it, and they are just doing their best to, to get into it without falling. And continuously, these people are like, they're covered in pads and stuff, obviously, but they're falling and getting back up and trying it again. If you just said that I'm not going to skate until I know I can drop into that bowl and jump right back out and land some kind of crazy trick, you would never do it, right? Like you would never actually make that move. Exactly. That's the whole point, right? Like if you wait for a monumentous risk to take, you'll never take it. Um, And I think obviously this applies a lot to entrepreneurship. And I know you have a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs. You know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes I see people who are in very steady careers and they dream of starting a company, you know, and they come call me and they're like, Sukinder, should I quit my great job and start a company? And I'm a, and I always sort of reflect, I'm like, well, before you quit your job and start that company, and by the way, I've been an entrepreneur three times. I'm like, if you're not sure, why don't you, you know, why don't you start working on your idea in the evenings? Why don't you take an entrepreneurship class? Why don't you, you know, why don't you really put up a website using Squarespace? And, and just see what happens and get some data and results before you sort of incrementally and start to make some incremental moves before you make that big leap. And they're like, well, Sukinder, I don't have time. I'm too busy. To which I respond, okay, well, if you don't have the time in your current job to take the small risk of using some of your free time in order to test out some of these ideas, uh, why would you take a enormous risk? you know, without first getting data. So that's a perfect example to me. If you want to be an entrepreneur, like you can try it on for size many different ways before you actually make the leap. And that's just not smarter risk-taking. That increases your odds of success, as you and I both know, with the data you get back. But it is ironic how many people will make a big leap and a singular leap, by the way. I see that a lot as well, where people are like, well, this is my idea. Uh, Or this company offered me a job. I'm going to take it. And I'm like, okay, well, what is it trying to satisfy? And maybe you should step back. And before you take that job, go take four other job interviews just to have some data points to compare. Again, get yourself some incremental data by doing some incremental risk-taking, you know, before you make a bigger choice. So I think this idea of pumping your risk-taking muscles, I always say, don't wait till like, don't wait till like (laughs) you're standing on the edge of a cliff to decide to take a risk um, and see whether you can fly. I would start taking risks early and often. Another way I've heard you call this out is basically it's an experiment that you're doing. You're doing small experiments along the way. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson says, and he observed at one point, that life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. And I think that that's an important point along with this. Like You just got to keep on trying these little things along the way instead of, again, looking for this one big movement. Now, I think that a lot of people struggle with this because of a point that you also have talked about before, which is we have this idea of needing complete clarity or an exact understanding of the destination we're trying to achieve. (laughs) Can you talk about, I've even heard you say that you don't need to have perfect goals or clarity to start taking some risk. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, this comes back to the conversation we just had about reasons to take risk. So most people think about risk-taking as something you do to achieve an outsized ambition, right? You take a big risk. And before you take that big risk, you do, as we talked about, perfect planning. You imagine the you know, scenario you want, and you plan every step in detail. Let's step back from that. When I say that you can take risk before you have a complete plan, there are other reasons to take risk. One I just mentioned, to discover. 
just to discover the opportunities. So when I say to someone, take a little risk every day, it might be having an informational interview with an entrepreneur. You think about it might be, by the way, just doing research on an industry that you're thinking about entering, right, as an entrepreneur. It might be honestly speaking up in a meeting because you're so frustrated with the impact you're having today and you want to discover what happens if you put your idea out there. So when you have this idea that risk-taking starts with discovery, it becomes very clear you don't need a plan in order to start taking risks. And then if you move one up from there, there's risk-taking to learn, right? Again, before, like, if you want to plan, you first need to learn so you can take risks to learn. But when we think about this ultimate idea, and I want to come to it because I think it's super important of having this perfect plan, people somehow think that if you write down on paper all the steps you take, it will give you more actual certainty. But you and I both know, like, there is no such thing as predicting perfectly the future. In fact, it's impossible. Researchers will tell you it's impossible. So you can roughly plan for where things might head based on something that's happening today and the learnings you have but you'll never get it completely right. And in fact, once you're in action, you can respond to the data you have. So this idea that perfect planning is going to get you success, I think takes lots and lots of cycles of imperfectly predicting, whereas you can get in motion with little risks and then respond to data and your plan can evolve. So I always say to people, the best kind of plan is a whiteboard plan. And you know, I laugh because when I was running StubHub, which was my most recent job, I had a whiteboard, and there are many people who sold whiteboards. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'm sure you have, with like detailed, detailed bullet points, so detailed you can't even read the damn thing. And they fill the entire right. whiteboard, and they say, do not touch. But if you looked at it from far back, you could never read all the information, right? Like, so that's what I call the perfect plan. And then there was my side of the whiteboard, and I was like, okay, what are the five moves we need to make in the next quarter? And I literally would just bullet point them out. And I was like, okay, like you can erase the whole rest of the whiteboard. Just like save that quarter because that's like my rough guide. And now I just want to get into motion and I can keep adding to my plan. I can go create a spreadsheet if I want. I just want to remember these five key things I'm trying to accomplish and start like tacking my way there. Um, and then I can erase one, honestly, if I'm wrong, like just midway through. I can be like, oh, wrong. <laughs> okay, there were four. <laughs> and so... I like these ideas of whiteboard plans, which might be on your iPhone, it might be on an actual whiteboard, and getting into motion in these ways we describe. I love that. Right behind where I'm recording, you can't see it because there's something blocking it right now whenever I'm recording, but I've got a wall of whiteboards lined up, and mm -hmm. uh, I more take your approach, which I'm thankful to hear. I, I walk into some people's offices or even homes, and I'm like, wow, your whiteboard is very organized. Uh, but it, I know that if you try to erase it, you can't because it's been there for so long that that, you know, eventually becomes a little bit permanent. So mine um, looks like chicken scratch all over it, and it's getting erased every single day. It's it's how I get the thoughts out of my head and onto paper. And yeah. uh, it helps. It does help with the clarity. It helps me ha uh, remember that, hey, I'm taking a small risk today. And it gives me every time I do that, a little bit more clarity as, where I'm, as to where I'm going. Uh, so it's a very helpful, helpful practice. Yeah, it's so funny because... Believe me, I, I have a plan. I always have a plan. So I'm not suggesting not planning, but I plan at what I call a rough level on the upside. And then, and then I really am waiting to see what happens while keeping that kind of North Star four or five ideas in place. And if one of them is wrong, I can take it out once I, once I have more data. But uh, yeah, these very detailed plans um, done in abstract. I'm not, you know, I don't know. It takes a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know it gives people comfort, and I understand that, and I call that research. Like, you know, yeah, map all the little plans out, steps out if it helps you visualize the potential path, but 
for God's sake, if you think that's, you know, that's how it's actually going to unfold, um, you'd be better off to get an emotion on step one or two and then keep and keep writing as you go. Hey, Alex Sanfilippo here, and I want to take a quick moment to intentionally serve the world with you. Here's what I want you to do. Think of the one person you know who would most benefit from listening to this episode today. Now, I want you to send it to them, but also include an encouraging note explaining why you share this episode with them specifically. By doing this, you're helping me grow this podcast, and you're also adding value to the people you care about. With that said, thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. And now, let's get back to today's episode. So your book, the title of it makes me remind, it reminds me of myself. So if I'm always thinking to always choose a mindset of possibility, I'm often overly optimistic when it comes to my planning. And I just wonder what you would say to somebody like that. Like I have the company I started, I expected it to be doing like crazy within just a month. And now I look back, I'm like, Alex, that's so silly. And then six months, I'm like, oh, it's gonna be insane. And same thing, I look back, I'm like, Alex, you're crazy. Like my, my companies are doing very well, but never do I hit the numbers that are in my head. And maybe that's just the, I don't know, maybe that's just being an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah. But I, I wonder what you would say to somebody who always kind of has like this, this big mindset of where they're going. And maybe even if they are taking these risks and succeeding, but never reaching the goal that's in their head, what would you say to somebody who's maybe in that same boat as, as I am? Well, it's so funny, because look, as entrepreneurs, you cannot exist without um, dreaming large. I'm the same. You know, I've started three companies and they've all had different outcomes. And of course, I went into every one. That's what, like, that's how I, you know, subsisted for years on end. And so, of course, I believe in big mindsets. However, I think that you sort of point to this idea and I, and I first learned about it. Actually, I don't take any credit. I first learned about this in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And it's, and it really resonated with me. And you might know the example I'm talking about. Where, you know, he gives the example of, of course, not somebody who's not an entrepreneur that's dreaming of big success, but actual, actually a true Vietnam War veteran who becomes a prisoner of war, Jim Stockdale. And, you know, ultimately, he becomes an American hero. He not only, you know, gets out, but he is credited with saving the lives of lots of other POWs in the camp during the Vietnam War. And so people interview him on why he was successful. And you would expect him to say, you know, oh, my goodness, like I, you know, just dreamed and kept, you know, my hopes alive. And in fact, that's true. But what he really said was that that was key to his success was that he was an optimistic realist. So what he meant by that was, look, of course, if I looked around the camp and saw who was thriving and who wasn't or who was making it and who wasn't, he said, they were all these different things I observed. Number one, people who were endlessly optimistic and thought they were going to be rescued tomorrow had some of the most difficult times. Because, in fact, the war was long. And if you thought that, like, you were going to be rescued tomorrow, it was really, you know, those people actually were massively depressed. Then he talked about people who never believed they were going to be rescued. And they also were really challenged. Whereas Jim, over the short term, was a realist. He was like, what do I need to do to survive every day, presuming that this could go on for a while, while retaining hope in that end goal that I am ultimately going to, you know, escape. And so this idea that in the short term, we need to be realist. And to your point, Alex, look at the data, you know, as an entrepreneur, we want to have that end vision in mind, but every day respond to data and be prepared. Honestly, it's okay to be pessimistic and paranoid in your day-to-day activities, because in some ways, that's how you make the pivots and the leaps, you know, and the necessary changes by looking at the data and be like, oh, I thought I was going to be at, to your point, you know, $10,000 in revenue this month, and I'm at 1000 
Well, if you expect that every day it's going to be hard and you're going to need to look for data points that tell you where you need to go, you can respond to threats in the short term while being optimistic in the long term. So yes, I am an optimist, but I would tell you, and I really do think it's possible, that you can practice choosing possibility as a muscle and not start as an optimist, but end more optimistic because you ultimately know how to deal with the winding journey and the, you know, and as we talk about these day-to-day choices with the expectation that it's not a singular move that gets you success. So I'm not saying don't dream of success, dream of it all you want, but I think prepare yourself for sort of the realistic journey. And and when you have that mindset, right, you can be both a realist and an optimist. And I guess that's, um, that's really what I believe. I love that. I think that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that mindset. You know, this, this makes me think about some people who are listening that just have this fear of failure, just completely overwhelmed by it. It holds them back even on some of the smaller decisions, but definitely the bigger ones, which I think we'll get into in a moment here. But what would you say to somebody who just is listening to this and they, they don't have that optimistic attitude? They're not thinking positively. They're just afraid that, oh, if I do this, I take this risk, I'm probably going to fail. What would you say to that person who's really struggling with that mindset? Yes, it's, uh, it's so interesting because uh, I think what I posit, and I think we just touched on a bit of this, is in fact, whenever any of us takes risks, we're not actually confronting one fear, but we're confronting two. We're con- confronting A, this fear of missing out, I call it, which is this like optimistic, like, oh my goodness, if I don't act, I'm going to miss this great reward. So that's a positive fear, right? Or action-infusing fear, like, you know, action-inducing fear. And then we have what we call the fear of failure. And so many people think, as we pointed out, that if you just like drive your FOMO, you're going to act. But if your fear of failure is bigger than your FOMO, like if just think about that as a mental equation, you know, fear of failure is greater than FOMO, it's going to equal inaction. And if your FOMO is greater than your fear of failure, you're going to act. And so rather than to your point, if you're not naturally optimistic, (laughs) pumping your FOMO, yes, that's one way to go. Like dream of and visualize all the positives. But I always suggest that people also look at the fears they're afraid of and actually spend a good amount of time trying to map through what happens in the failure case before you get started as, uh, as an exercise that actually gets you to act. Because what I'm trying to get you to do is to understand your fear of failure ahead of time. And if you can, minimize it, not by like just looking it in the face and being ready to grit it out, but literally what I call imagining the choice after the choice. So let's say you imagine failure on your first move, you know, or first and second or third. The very next thing you're going to do is imagine what would you do in the failure state. And the minute you can start to identify two or three or four moves you would make if the first move fails and the second and the third, now you're on your way to actually minimizing your fear of failure by having imagined the repercussions and how you deal with them. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that when we actually fail, uh, weirdly, we have you know, lesser fear of failure going forward because we've lived through the failure, right? We've seen and acted what I call the choice after the choice. We had to be in that position. And so um, I always think if you haven't, if you haven't been through a big failure yet, I would submit, try imagining your way through the failures, you know, that are keeping you from acting and write down at least one, two, or three choices after the choice you would make. And if you can do that, uh, then you likely have a way to move forward. Uh, not just by pumping your FOMO, but by actively kind of facing your fears and and anticipating them. I think that's really brilliant because what you're doing is getting all these unknowns out of your head. You're putting it down on paper somewhere. You're not taking months or years to do this. It should be a fairly quick practice, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? 
Yeah, it should be a fairly quick practice. On small decisions, you could write down a list. And, and you know, and when you obviously write down these kind of choices you make, it also helps you size that risk and fear appropriately, right? So it's, it's very easy to say, gosh, let's say you quit a job for a new job and it doesn't work out. And that to you seems daunting. But when you write, start to write down what your choice is after the choice, let's say one of the choices is to go back to your original job because, you know, you left for startup or a new industry, it didn't work out and you come back. So, you know, presuming you, you're, you're great at your job and they would have you, um, the, what's the real risk there? Is it ego risk? Like, okay, like confront that risk and say, okay, what's the worst that happens? I, you know, I have this potential kind of upside and I have a lot of FOMO about that, but my real risk is, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm employable again, potentially even back at the same company I left. And I, you know, I have to explain that I took a risk to learn something new and it didn't work out. Uh, is that really, uh, you know, an unfaceable fear? I'm not sure it is. But when you write down what you'd actually do afterwards, you sort of size your risks as well. Yeah. And again, I really like this point because it, it gets everything that's out of our head, which can be very disorganized. I mean, our head, I believe it's David Allen who talks about our head being a crappy office. It's for having ideas, not for storing them. And when we try to store too much up there at the same time as articulating to ourselves what we're presented with, or maybe the risk or the potential reward that we have, it's hard to keep it all organized there. And by doing this simple practice you laid out, we can actually make some some real headway, some real progress in this. So I, that's a point that I really like a lot. And this leads me into an, another question here. And it's on the topic of bigger leaps. You talk about some like bigger decisions that need to be made. Is this the same practice you recommend when you're doing something that's truly life-altering, like maybe leaving a stable career for a startup that you want to get into or even your own? Is this kind of the same idea that you would take? Well, of course, when I do, when I make bigger leaps, and you can probably tell from this podcast that I'm a big fan of being a calculated risk taker. I'm not a believer that like risk taking is rash, right? I'm the opposite. Right. By the way, that doesn't mean I overthink things. I have a pretty active gut, but it does mean that I always want, as we talked about, to sort of lay out my choices, have multiple choices to compare. And yeah, I have a, I have a sort of a rough framework for bigger leaps. And I think the difference with bigger leaps versus smaller leaps you know, smaller leaps, taking little risks every day, speaking up, what have you, like you're facing sort of, you know, one risk. In a bigger leap, you might be facing multiple risks. You might be facing, you know, financial risk and personal risk. And by the way, you have multiple variables to consider. And, you know, I, I always think that um, when people look at every one of their choices, they presume the only variable they need to consider is their own effort. And in fact, there's several variables you need to consider in any choice. So, you know, I always, believe it or not, I always score bigger choices. I have a running spreadsheet. Like I am unemployed right now. I'm not quite unemployed. Okay, I wrote a book, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a sitting CEO right now, which right. is my kind of yeah. classic career. And believe me, I have a running spreadsheet, like of all the factors I'm considering and when things come in that I'm considering and at any point in time, I might be looking at two or three different opportunities. I literally score them just to keep in my own head, you know, track of how these different choices compare to each other. And honestly, it really helps me identify where my gut is ringing because people think that you can't have sort of data and instinct, but you can, right? Because when you start to score things, it sort of shows you what you're really fearing in a numerical way. And it sort of, and it sort of forces you to probe into like, why are you nervous? Like Alex, why are you nervous about something? You might just say, well, my gut's telling me to be nervous. And I'd be like, okay, about what? Like score it. And it will, you know, it will help you understand what it is you're nervous about and what your gut is telling you. So uh, bigger leaps, um, I would say still a pretty simple framework, but it's kind of, you know, got three or four choices that I make against three or four variables. Um, and then, of course, like everybody, you know, I come back to my gut when the data is done. 
I certainly go to a set of people to, you know, get advice, but maybe not the advice you'd expect. I'm not necessarily sort of saying to them, gosh, like, which would you choose? You know, I'm more I'm like, hey, right. knowing me, what do you think I should choose? Like, given my background, what you know of me, you know, here's like what I've laid out as my calculus. What do you think? So I certainly use others, but not to ask them what they do, to ask them what they know of me and what they think I should do. Um, and then ultimately, I set a time frame. Like I, I am a time frame person. And if at the end of it, I can't make what I call the max choice, like I can't push myself to go full throttle, I'll at a minimum make what I call a min choice, a choice to even like take one step in one path on one path to get some more data. Yeah, you have a really cool um, quiz that teaches people, it shows people like what kind of risk taker they are. You and I are both the calculator and you definitely just proved <laughs> that. Um, but the way you just said all that. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. It kind of bring this thing closer to the end of the episode here. I want to quickly talk about the myth of risk and reward, because a lot of people have a wrong mindset around this. Can you talk about the myth of risk and reward? Yes. Well, you know, I think as we come to the end here, let's talk about where we started, which is when we perceive that success is binary and that it rests on a single choice, we're likely to overweight a single choice and believe that the reward will you know, flow in a relatively linear fashion in a very fixed time period, you know, and we will see the results. But think about what I just told you. A bigger leap often in, involves multiple choices and multiple risks. And let's face it, multiple goals. Like, have you ever made a bigger leap that was just singular? I bet you had had a financial, you know, reward you were thinking about, a personal reward, maybe even a reputational reward. Maybe all three of those things were there. Well, you're going to make a move, and I'm going to bet that on the first move, you're not going to be able to satisfy all three of those rewards, and that you're going to, as we talked about, iterate. And by the time it's all done, my friend, you will have a hard time mapping which move and which choice led to which reward, and which of those rewards did you achieve and which did you not, and where did you achieve something that wasn't what you originally expected. So you and I can both agree that the myth of reward really challenges this idea that reward and risk are linearly correlated. I tell you, they are not. I can point to small risks that had outsized outcomes for myself, and I can point to some pretty big doozies, you know, where the, where the, where the successes were, quite frankly, small, right? But cumulatively, when you string them together, people are like, wow, you have an impressive career. And I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. If you, it, when mapped over many cycles, it's going to look pretty darn impressive. But I tell you, within a cycle and within a set of choices, uh, not so much. Right. And I think you did a great job in your book of really exploring that and showing that, like the ups and downs. You even had the signs of growth is what you called it on your career path of showing like mm -hmm. the, the ups and downs. But again, if you drew a line towards just the average, it would always be going slightly up. And I think mm -hmm. that's what many of us don't realize. We just think that if it starts going down, it's going to continue that direction. But really, it just leads to a different opportunity or a different perspective. So um, this is great. I I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, so, Kinder, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners today? Well, you know, I think if I do have a final thought, it's, 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 it's this. Number one, if you think what prevents you from taking a risk is that you're not a natural risk taker, you know, there is a way to choose possibility and to reframe risk in your own mind so that it becomes accessible to every single, you know, every single listener of this podcast. Number two, as I say, if you can't start with the max VC or the max, you know, viable choice that you're contemplating because it just seems too daunting, just make the minimum viable choice. Take the smallest risk you can today, you know, and see what happens. 
And I think when we think about risk that way, you know, it makes it much more accessible to all of us uh, and certainly reframes, you know, this idea of what it really means to have what people call this kind of growth mindset. I find like growth mindset is a great term, but I think for many people, it's like, what does it really mean and how do I really enact it? So, you know, make a minimum viable choice, make a smallest, take the smallest risk you can today to discover something, learn something, set up a new ambition, or even, you know, avoid something that's harmful. Those are all reasons to take risk today. I love that. That's such a great actual way to end this episode. So, Kendra, thank you so much for being a guest. And I look forward to following your career as it continues to evolve. Can't wait to see what company you're CEO of next or what company you start. Who knows which <laughs> it's going to be at this point. But uh, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It was truly a joy to talk to you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Alex. Sukinder is one of the most accomplished people I've ever had the opportunity to speak with. And fun fact about her, when she was at Google, she was over the entire team responsible for Google Maps and also filling those maps with the restaurants that we all know and love in many other places. Talk about someone I'm thankful for. Now, I don't know about you, but I found this conversation to be very motivational. Maintaining this mindset of possibility is so much healthier than having a constant mindset of fear around change and risk in our lives. This conversation really helped me to see things from a more positive light, and I hope that it did the same for you. Sukinder, thank you again for being a guest and sharing your journey with us all today. To pick up a copy of Sukinder Sin Cassidy's book, Choose Possibility, and to take her risk quiz, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 120. Thank you as always for listening. I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. Thank you.